Uh, before we got into it, though, I, I was wondering. So we are all on energy Twitter. And it's been a dramatic moment on Twitter in which it's sometimes and in some ways feels like um, maybe it's falling apart. And I was Wait, wondering what's been where, going on with Twitter. Uh, no comment other than if it does fall apart, has anybody given thought about what platform you would go to? Are we discording? Are we what is like uh, Mastodon or something? There's Reddit. Has anybody thought this through? Uh, I'm just going to go back to like WordPress and people can leave comments if they want. I mean, I, I'm kind of like Twitter ride or die at this point. And candidly, despite all the negative feedback, I personally think Twitter has only become more entertaining in the last several weeks. Uh, what with the Chiquita account and uh, Eli Lilly, that's some that's some good fun online. It is. I'm, my kids have been illuminating me on that, and I, I really appreciate it. It's I just keep my head on the on the boring worky stuff. <laughs> but yep. Uh, Dan, are you going anywhere? Or are you just not worried about I, it? You're rider, you're riding. I'm you just waiting I, every day. You've yeah, got I'm like, do I still have mark. that? I don't know. I just I'm not paying for it. I know that for sure. Well so Elon Musk right now is like, oh, Dan's not paying for it. We gotta scrap that plan. Yeah. I just I, I have to say it is remarkable how fast somebody can just burn a $44 billion investment. Like there's no capital. There's no like physical stuff to sell. He can't like sell machinery. It's not like a plant that you can take apart and auction off parts of it. It's just the brand and like a bunch of servers. He fired <laughs> yeah. most of the staff and advertisers are fleeing. And you're just like, I, I cannot imagine having that much money that you're just like, yeah, I'm just going to, burn through this huge amount of debt, these tens of billions of dollars I just took on. And don't forget, insult your ad the advertisers on their way out. So yeah. they don't yeah. even back. <laughs> I mean, nobody three weeks ago was talking about Twitter possibly just no. becoming like a, just insolvent and financially dead. No, nope, nobody was talking about it. I am, I am, I'm thinking of trying to follow somebody to Mastodon. I think that's where I would like to follow someone, but I can't do this on my own. I need to, I need somebody to tell me how to do this. I would, Mastodon I would, is too confusing. I, I, I'll, I'll wait to get tapped on the shoulder by the right person, I guess. Yeah, too confusing for what the max, the, the masters from Cambridge, Oxford, somewhere over there is still too confusing <laughs> for you. <laughs> Yeah, Travis, I think, is the has the record for least Harvard drops of any Harvard grad I know. <laughs> You're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> we started in hard times to bring us all in Into the laughter through thick and through thin For public power enthusiasts without and within Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Thanks for pressing play on Public Power Underground. I'm Paul Dockery. I'm Dan Catchpole. I'm Abigail Sawyer. Joining as this week's celebrity guest star is Travis Kavula. Travis is the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at NRG and former regulatory serving as a commissioner on the Montana Public Service Commission. Welcome to Public Power Underground, Travis. Thank you. Glad to be with all of you today. And you are joining us from... Uh, the Marriott Hotel hosting the Nehruk Annual Meeting here in New Orleans, Louisiana. That is outstanding. 
it's, it's like, a little it's a little it's the most drab place you could be in New Orleans, but I'll rectify that later in the evening. <laughs> I, I believe you will. I think you're gonna be like our special correspondent from Nehruk this year. Very exciting. I'd be happy to serve. <laughs> On today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're approaching some electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a regulatory angle. We'll talk elections, NARUC, bifurcated price formation and legislative mandates for RTO participation. Then we're short circuiting our way through the rest of the topics we didn't get to in in a segment we're calling short to ground. But before we get started, a quick word from our presenting sponsor. Public Power Underground is brought to you by the Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit company that specializes in portfolio management and prides itself on leading communities through today's energy transformation. Owned by public power entities, TEA is more than just adjacent. They're as underground as it gets. TEA is on a mission to help clients maximize the value of their assets while meeting their power supply goals. Great mission. By providing expertise in energy trading, advanced analytics, advisory, and renewable solutions, TEA equips public power utilities with access to state-of-the-art resources and technology systems so they can respond competitively in the changing energy markets. With over 60 other public power utilities proudly partnering with TEA to tackle their energy future, it's time for you to consider breaking ground too. Let TEA help you navigate the uncertain future of our industry by visiting teainc.org. That's teainc.org to learn more today. Next up is Public Power Desktop, where we close out some browser tabs of energy and energy-adjacent news. You got the first story, Dan. Take it away. All right. Well, Tuesday, November 8th was Election Day. uh, News Data's publications have the Western Energy Angles covered for you. I covered the elections for the Montana Public Service Commission and PUD races in the Northwest for clearing up. And Earth covered California elections for California energy markets, including the defeat of Proposition 30, a measure that would have taxed the wealthy to fund zero emission vehicles and wildfire mitigation programs. And our own Abigail Sawyer covered the rest of the West in California energy markets, including Colorado and New Mexico, handing decisive re-election victories to their Democratic governors and maintaining Democratic control in the legislative chambers of both those states. The results in Arizona and Nevada were still unclear at the time of publication for our November 11th newsletters. I thought it was a fascinating election. Uh, some really surprising results, as everybody else did. Uh, I was particularly interested, and in, Travis and I were talking about this a little bit on Friday. Um, I'll put you on the spot, Travis. So what do you think of Montana Public Service Commission's newest elected member, Ann Bukasek? Yeah, so uh, Annie Bukacek uh, ran or from Bukacek. the Flathead uh, Valley, uh, which is a very conservative district. Uh, it's balanced up by Lewis and Clark County, where Helena, Montana is based. And as you would expect, the state capital leans more to the left. Um, so it's a, a district with a significant Republican advantage, and that Republican advantage manifested pretty clearly uh, in the election. So the commission in Montana will continue to have five members, uh, all of whom are Republican. And there was a, a pretty active debate, I'd say. And they raised a good amount of money, each of them, uh, with uh, Dr. Bukacek uh, sort of generically advocating for lower rates, uh, while her opponent sort of claimed the mantle of greater experience in the industry. Um, but that 
candidly does not seem to have mattered uh, in the face of uh, having an R or D uh, attached to your name. So it's it's an interesting thing to elect commissions. I, I know we're going to talk about a couple of others that are elected, um, but as a reminder to your listeners, there are about a dozen uh, regulatory commissions that are elected uh, in the United States, <clears throat> all of them uh, on a partisan basis. And, uh, you know, the, the good of that uh, is that you get to be your own base of power. You're not subject necessarily to the uh, influence of the governor or other elected officials, which is the case in uh, other jurisdictions where the commission's independence might be questioned. And of course, the bad uh, is that you tend to draw not necessarily the candidates with the greatest amount of experience, but whoever can win an election. Um, you know, these elections used to matter a lot when um, uh, they were they were regulating railroads, and when the railroad was perhaps the livelihood of uh, rural agricultural communities, who you elected as commissioner might actually be more important than who you elected as attorney general or even the governor. Um, but now, despite the importance that voters place on energy issues, it's it's hard to see uh, public service commission races really breaking through uh, on the issues unless there's something that's really particularly on fire uh, in a state like uh, rooftop solar uh, net metering. Imagine, for instance. <laughs> for example. <laughs> for example. We'll talk a little bit about that coming up. But before yeah. we, we go, can, can somebody orient me for the West? Like Washington, Oregon, and California are all appointed by the governor and their commission. Is that right? And likewise, then who are, Nevada. Likewise, Nevada. Can, who, uh, other, others in the Arizona. West are elected. So uh, Republicans held on to their two seats that were up in the Arizona Corporation Commission not, election. Not certain yet. Oh, not so. Okay. There you yeah, go. I mean, there's they're still counting votes, but uh, okay. Um, it's, Take it's, it away, Abigail, on the Southwest. Well, yeah, yeah. Let, let's go with that. I mean, actually, you say Republicans held on to their two seats, but uh, if the Republicans who are currently leading by you know about a point, I think, um, prevail. Then they will have ousted Democrat Sandra Kennedy, who from her from her first term this go round, um, she was running for re-election, but she served on the commission before. And if you want to know the the deep and dirty saga behind all of that, you can uh, become a subscriber of California Energy Markets <laughs> and look to our archives because there uh, are there's just all sorts of intrigue. If you're the type, if you are a true electric enthusiast who likes to dive into utility regulatory soap opera drama i believe you me the arizona corporation commission has it for you yeah the oh, nexus yeah. of electric utility enthusiasts and also political wonks i mean that's uh the venn diagram it maybe just be travis or is, is that your venn diagram travis <laughs> surely there's more than me uh who love following election news and regulating utilities well i often joke that i'm gonna i'm gonna quit and uh write the miniseries for netflix on about the Arizona Corporation Commission, but yeah, close rival in the <laughs> right. in the New Mexico Public Regulatory Commission. Yeah, uh, well, that'd be uh, things uh, to do. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'd, anyway, I'd watch. yeah. Oh, good to know, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> we're out there, and that's why we need Energy Twitter to promote my, you know, there we go. My, my second career. Anyway, um, what is going on? So that that would be a really decisive switch because we would we would still have one democrat um in arizona on the commission rather than the three two split we'd have a four one split but it's anybody's guess at this point uh we didn't think you know this time in 2020 after the election we didn't think kennedy was going to be on but she pulled from behind and was seated and right now there's i think what did i jot down i believe it's 93 percent of the vote is counted and she is within a point of 
the number two uh, position. You know, it's there are four candidates running. The other Democrat is a few points down. So it seems less likely uh, that she would overtake anyone. But Kennedy's within a point of the number two. She's in third place. And most of the votes remain. Well, let's just say the county with the most votes remaining to be counted. She leads by 1.7% right now. So she could do it. Um, yeah, it's like live watching the New York Times needle with Abigail giving us the numbers. <laughs> it's not like that. It's it's really nuts. And of course, you know, in Arizona, also we've got Chris Mays, who is a former corporation commissioner. She sat on the ACC back in 2006 when they were amazingly, I believe, the first one of the first, if not the first, state to adopt a renewables portfolio standard. They have not updated that since 2006, so it remains 15% by 2025. They haven't met it yet. You know, this this is how you see, like, it would really be an interesting switch to who, who is controlling the Corporation Commission, because as we all know, Arizona's got plenty of sunshine. And when Chris May's uh, last was in elected office, she was a Republican, and now she oh, seems to yeah. be set to be uh, inaugurated, potentially, depending on how the votes shake out as the Democratic yeah. Attorney General. Exactly. Sorry. Yes, I I, um, I, I miss <laughs> I got a, a tangled up in my own line of thought and forgot to say she's she's leading by point two against Republican Abe Hamada for the open seat, which was termed out um, for Arizona's attorney general. So, and Abigail, you you framed up this topic in an article leading up to the elections about what this could mean really for the West on um, energy policy these these elections. Can you kind of refresh on like the Southwest has a lot of solar um, needs a lot of transmission? Can you frame up and maybe Travis, you can also kind of kick in some thoughts about why Southwest uh, commissions are going to be important for the West? Well, yeah, it's just kind of some of what I've spoken to so far is that there's a lot of sunshine in Arizona. There's a lot of sunshine in Nevada, also geothermal in both all over this area. There is a whole lot of geothermal and energy potential. And in Colorado and New Mexico, tons of wind. That's something we saw last week that happened too, is a transmission. In Arizona, we had uh, approval for the Sunzia transmission line. And and that's going to bring a lot of that wind power in New Mexico, the largest wind power, wind farm in the U.S. uh, when it goes online. And I believe 2025 uh, will be able to deliver that power to Phoenix, to Tucson, to LA, to Vegas, perhaps, you know, interconnection is, you know, we'll, we'll see where it all ends up going. But uh, so that's exciting. Um, and, you know, Colorado's huge in wind. There's that there's the whole wind belt that kind of runs down the center of the country along the Colorado, Nebraska sort of border and New Mexico down to West Texas and, and all the way up. But, you know, I'm focusing more on the Southwest. So that's what I think about. But, you know, this is where so much of our energy is likely to come from very soon. I mean, it's, starting now and and more and more as we move ahead with other plans and goals and laws at various levels in various states and the federal government so yeah, yeah. anything to add there travis on kind of your no, thoughts just, on 
just to briefly touch on New Mexico, you know, it's a state that does have an elected commission, but is phasing out its elections and it will become an appointed body um, beginning in the new year. The, the big issue, the biggest issue, I should say, in New Mexico has probably been Avangrid's attempted merger or acquisition of uh, PNM, the largest local utility. Um, PNM is... Um, uh, not not a huge company, and its major asset uh, is the New Mexico uh, utility that it owns, um, and um, uh, and and it, it'll be interesting to see. The the regulator rejected the acquisition. The matter is still in litigation. It'll be interesting to see if a new commission uh, does something to reverse that outcome. Uh, it reminds me of a, a prior attempted utility takeover of Hawaiian Electric, uh, which was ultimately rejected by regulators. And you know, PNM strikes me as kind of a similar entity. Uh, you know, um, one of the very few publicly traded corporations um, that has its headquarters in New Mexico, a state that is poorer than much of the rest of the West, um, and a state that's uh, skeptical, I think it's fair to say, of outside influences coming in. And Avangrid is, you know, uh, controlled by Iberdrola, a Spanish firm. Um, it's had some troubled investments uh, elsewhere in the United States. The, the regulatory proceedings featured <laughs> um, the chairman of a main house committee, uh, where Avangrid owns the utility, literally phoning in public comment to New Mexico to oppose the acquisition. Uh, so when you've wow. so offended, when you've so offended policymakers in your home turf that they start picking up the phone and dialing other states in our big laboratory of democracy, uh, that tends not to be good for you. Um, that being said, like like uh, like utilities will do, uh, there's been an exceptional amount of log rolling and um, favors giving uh, to try to secure eventual approval um, of this merger. So I know those of us who kind of keep tabs on corporate finance and who's merging with who uh, have definitely looked at that as uh, a, a possibly significant uh, piece of, of regulatory activity that is subject to litigation and alteration depending on the new composition of the commission. Wow. Travis, that was excellent. You want a job? You want to want to freelance for me when I, when I take a vacation? That was excellent. <laughs> um, and going back to where this all started with the Montana Commission, uh, first, so for listeners who don't know, Travis was a former commissioner on the Montana Public Service Commission several years ago. That's where I first met him. And uh, to your point, Travis, about railroads, I think the Texas Commission is still called the Texas Railroad service commission or something like yeah, they, that, right? They, they have two commissions, the Texas Railroad yeah. Commission, uh, which does not regulate railroads, regulates the natural gas and oil yeah. industry, uh, and they are the economic regulator of gas local distribution companies in the state. Um, and there, there was actually a very spirited uh, campaign uh, where the Democratic opponent of the Republican incumbent had a slogan uh, that was, uh, I can't say this on the podcast, but un-F the grid. Uh, he made um, ball caps and other things. Um, but he was uh, soundly defeated by the incumbent Wayne Christian, um, who was a former gospel singer. Uh, meanwhile, the Public Utility Commission of Texas uh, regulates the electricity sector and regulates ERCOT, uh, which is the wholesale RTO uh, that is intrastate uh, to Texas and famously uh, not connected by uh, alternating current uh, to the rest of the America, United States grid. So uh, it's a very unique state, uh, but uh, uh, Texas is the only one, I believe, that has chosen to uh, continue to have the nomenclature of the Railroad Commission. Montana Commission, the reason I brought it up at the the beginning, Travis did not take the bite. 
or bait. Yeah, uh, you know, as Travis, you mentioned about how the uh, the Republican was talking about rates, the Democrat was talking about experience, but the only things that everybody else was talking about it was really her and Bukasek. Her she her personality was on the ballot in terms of in a lot of ways. The Montana Commission already is has some dysfunction. And it will, she certainly is a colorful personality joining it. Yeah, th- I think those are relevant considerations, those issues you raise. And, uh, you know, I'm re- willing to be open minded about the performance of, uh, you know, the newest member of the Montana Commission. And we'll see. I mean, she is, um, uh, you know, she she does have contrary views on COVID. Uh, she's a medical doctor. Um, she was on the Flathead Board of Public Health. She's definitely a, a cultural uh, lightning rod uh, in that whole part of the state. Um, but she's also someone who's campaigned on saying, I'm going to do the reading. I, I have experience in sort of synthesizing complex materials into a, a worldview of my own, which is certainly true. Um, and we'll see how she does. Um, you know, all I really ask of most regulators is that they, they actually do the work and listen to the parties and frankly, apply some modicum of skepticism <laughs> to the requests that come before them. Uh, that's sort of the least uh, you can do. And, you know, she may actually do well in terms of applying skepticism to some uh, aspects of the received wisdom if her uh, past is any guide. Well, that's a great segue to talk about the next topic around regulatories, because you just gave some great advice for what it takes to be a good regulator. Uh, So why don't we head to the next story, Abigail, and see where where that takes us. All right. Well, the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners is hosting its annual meeting and education conference in New Orleans this week. The conference theme is Connecting the Dots with... Innovative, Disruptive Technology and Regulation. Its agenda includes topics like energy justice, funding, flexible demand, resiliency, reliability, and a, quote, joint federal-state task force on electric transmission, end quote. So, reporting from Nehruk, (laughs) Travis Kavula, what's going on over there? Yeah, so this is uh, NARIC's annual meeting, uh, and it is back in full force after COVID. There are about 1,300 people here uh, registered and attending in person. I think it might be the first NARIC conference that has not happened on kind of a hybrid uh, virtual basis. So, um, but, you know, Nehruk is sort of the regulator's student council, if you will. And uh, there's many dozens, hundreds of regulators uh, from around the United States, from as far away as Guam, uh, who come together at this conference um, to uh, learn from each other, uh, to listen to panels, um, and to participate in less formal activities uh, in in a place like New Orleans. The the big topics here, like you say, is number one, uh, the federal government, uh, when it acts, we learned that it can act, it can act big. Um, The Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, are together just huge money cannons, uh, shooting money at utilities, at state governments. And I think a lot of regulators are understandably interested in what that all means for them. So how to take advantage of these opportunities, what are the opportunities under these federal laws uh, has been a topic much discussed in the hallways here. Um, Flexible demand uh, and distributed energy resources continue to actually be a a, a topic of growing significance. 
at, at Nehruk. I think there's a general understanding that as things become more difficult to permit, as the stuff that does get permitted uh, is sometimes sources of intermittent supply, that demand needs to step up to the occasion um, and actually be ready to take a more participatory role in making the whole system balance each other out. Uh, itself out, and that's been a big topic as well. I, I have been a little surprised um, that there has not been more discussion around um, affordability uh, and some of the basics of rate making. Uh, that 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 actually was a huge issue, right? Uh, at least on the gasoline and diesel side uh, in the American election, perhaps less so with electricity, but certainly present for natural gas. Um, but Dayruk uh, is not. Um, as, as surprisingly not focused a lot uh, on those topics, simply because I think it it, it, it has been um, to some degree focused on kind of congressional legislative activity in the current thing. And then you mentioned one final thing, uh, which is the FERC-NARUC Joint Task Force on Ele Electric Transmission. Um, the personal interest of mine, uh, FERC convened this task force using a little known provision of statutory authority uh, in the Federal Power Act that allows them to uh, assemble a joint record when federal and state regulators sit together in open session, and they can use that record to rely upon uh, in making the uh, a decision uh, later on. And um, that, that's it's rarely utilized, that provision of federal law. As you can imagine, usually the federal government uh, treats states more as stakeholders <laughs> and less as some kind of joint record builder or decision maker. But here for realizing that electric transmission cuts across both jurisdictions uh, in ways that allow either jurisdiction to effectively block uh, anything the other might dictate, um, it's essentially invited states to a seat at the table. And so far, what those discussions, which have been ongoing for several NARUC meetings, have revealed is that regional differences matter, <laughs> that the problems in building more electric transmission out west are largely, ironically, lie with the federal government in the form of federal land agencies, uh, whereas I think most people would point the finger more at states and state citing authority for much of the rest of the country. Um, so that that remains an interesting topic. I've, I've actually written a, a white paper uh, at NRG about uh, these interesting governance approaches to when the uh, federal uh, and state regulators sort of sit down together. And it's it's interesting, if nothing else, to sort of see it in action um, because it's uh, it's very rare um, for the for the federal and state jurisdictions to try to jointly problem solve in some kind of a formal manner. That that is not something that happens in other industries, but can happen here pursuant to federal law, and they're taking a swing at it. Oh, that's exciting. And you know, if if I might interject with another question, like you, you mentioned uh, that the federal landholders play a big role in siting transmission, et cetera, and permitting it, of course, but. How about private land ownership in the West? I think that's a huge issue too. You know, it really held up TransWest, for instance, for such a long time. So I'd care to chime in on that. Yeah, uh, th that's right. I mean, no one wants this in their backyard, uh, even if they think that it's necessary. And it's a tale as old as, as time. And, um, you know, I have a standing bet with uh, Rob Gramlich about uh, how much transition will be the transmission will be built during the Biden administration with me taking the under and him taking the over because I'm pretty skeptical uh, for about getting whoever owns the land uh, to, to agree to do it and just the long uh, time that it takes to get steel in the ground. But so we'll you see. got 
you've got the under. Where's the line at? You you buried. Where's yeah. the line? Uh, yeah, I, is I, it I, in I, miles or is it in? It's, a, it's in it's in mileage. Uh, <laughs> in terms of like permitted seemed, or actual uh, steel on the ground. Con, uh, yeah, I would not be so so foolish as to bet merely on a on the piece of paper. I want to see the yeah. steel on the ground. And uh, I think I think Rob, I am struggling to remember the number, but Rob picked an over optimistic one. It's recorded on Twitter, so long as Twitter okay. still exists when the bet comes due. So I'll look back. Well, you gotta send that to me so I can link thread. it. Excellent. Okay. I'll find okay. it. And and so and is this is there some complications on this bet? Is it in the first term of the Biden administration, or is there like a complication where you have to take into account a second term likelihood? Because that becomes a very complicated bet. First term. And um, the payoff is, <coughs> pardon me, the winning party gets to pick a hike of their choosing. The loser packs a six pack on the hike. Okay, I think I did see this one, and I just don't remember the number either. Uh, but I think I did see when this happened. Very exciting. Yeah, uh, can we pivot back to your white paper? So, was this white paper around different regulatory frameworks to make it better? What? Can, uh, love to hear what if you have any solutions for this whole problem. Uh, and, and you're in the synthesized <coughs> Twitter framing of you got to give me in like 140 characters or less. It's really 200. about it's really about where you have the intersection of state and federal decision making, like in transmission or even like how clean energy intersects with wholesale market design, um, how you should go about making those decisions that require some degree of consensus, both from FERC and from state regulatory authorities. So it's not an answer to the underlying substantive question. It's more about approaches uh, to, to try to get uh, consensuality. And, and this will actually be important in things like um, RAP and Western markets as well as they develop, ju federally jurisdictional markets that uh, clearly require a great deal of state input and consent if they're going to happen at all. And is this joint task force part of the formula for getting some of that coordination collaboration amongst us? Is this? Yeah, I, I won't claim credit for it, but the oh, that joint was not task part force, of your white paper. Uh, okay, uh, but no, is, no, the section, uh, the using section 209 of the Federal Power Act was definitely in the white paper. And I am delighted that FERC uh, decided to use it, though I will not claim any credit. Uh, just take over, some over credit. Deciding to do just take to just use a little bit. Approach. Maybe just, just a, a little, little bit, just a little Maybe bit of credit. The <laughs> readers can read. Uh, I will be sure to provide a link to the paper in your notes. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm I'm loving this. Uh, uh, any other questions about Nayruk from Dan or Abigail, or, or should we move well, to the next? Just one? Curious what the uh, the chatter is on the side. Like, is there any interesting vibe or or uh, yeah, just feeling you're getting from conversations in the hallway? I mean, I, I do think um, it depends, you know, what region you're talking about. And I know it's not your guys' region, but I do think New England regulators are extremely concerned about the upcoming winter, both in terms of customer price exposure as well as possible reliability risks. Um, New England is a region that has sort of ambled its way into linking uh, its market, in effect, to uh, global markets for natural gas uh, and diesel competition. Uh, you know, they they have some of the richest resources in natural gas uh, under production in the United States, uh, 100 miles away from them, but there's no pipeline capacity to bring the gas to them. And they are instead dependent on 
LNG imports, diesel imports into their region, and those markets are really tight going into the winter. Diesel is essentially heating oil that many New Englanders uh, continue to use to heat their homes. So um, this is a, a potentially big problem. If something bad happens, it could be quite bad. Um, and you're and you're seeing things like the CEO of New England's largest utility, Eversource, um, writing to President Biden and saying even before anything has happened, that it's time to declare an emergency. Um, so, uh, you know, like we've seen in Texas and California, uh, really uh, crises uh, um, unfurl. Um, I, I would say the highest risk, and I think this NERC would agree with this, the highest risk going into the coming winter is probably New England. So that, there's been a lot of chatter on that. And again, a lot of a lot of talk about the um, how Congress's action in um, tax subsidies for renewables and clean energy transforms the job of regulators in terms of the integrated resource planning uh, that they conduct um, and how and how they can uh, take advantage of all the other funds that are made possible under the new law, which people are still trying to figure out. Right. Yeah. And we should add that uh, to Jason Fordney, editor of California Energy Markets, is at Nehruk, and he's actually recording an episode of, uh, instead of our regular weekly update for Energy Northwest, he'll be recording an update from Nehruk that'll be out later this week. So. Again, Energy West Pod, take it out, check it out. Yeah. We'll have uh, coverage in California Energy Markets on Friday, too, so uh, zeroing in on the things that are happening that are a little more West-centric, I presume. So go go say hi to him, Travis, and take a selfie, ah. st stick it on Energy Twitter, and then tell I, us whether we're going to Discord or or wherever. I will, I will be on the lookout uh, for Jason. Absolutely. Perfect. Okay, take it away, Dan. You got the next one. As electric markets undergo the transformation to deep dark decarbonization, various price, price formation and market design solutions have been proposed to rationalize the spot price of power. One flavor of the solution, which garnered some popularity as a solution for the European energy crisis, was the suggestion of a split market for fossil and non-fossil fuel-based generation. In a Twitter thread on October 4th, Travis presented a take on this issue. You assert that a market structure with a uniform clearing price for all megawatt hours is the issue. Instead, the problem has it's not two, the issue. Or, yeah, I wrote oh, that wrong. That's my uh, fault. It's not I know, the I was issue. About to catch myself. I'll Isn't correct it issue. real quick. Instead, it's not the issue. Yeah. Instead, the problem has two other different issues. First, European markets don't have locational prices, and second, they are unhedged and have no security of supply in the medium to long term. So you suggest structural changes, and you reference a couple of solutions, uh, including some kind of resource adequacy construct. And then you mentioned Frank Wolak's standardized fixed price forward contract idea, or Farhad Bilamoria's reinsurance market. And I, one thing I was curious about, though, and it's a brilliant Twitter thread for anybody, and hopefully we'll link to it in the notes. I assume. Absolutely. As with, well, all right. It's a really interesting Twitter thread. You're. Are you okay with that, Travis? Well, thank um, you. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I mean, I I'm looking it was... at it. I'm looking at it now, and I'd like to say it's rare that a, t a Twitter thread on electricity price formation garners more than 100 likes. So that's my bar for success. I cleared the bar. There you go. With uh, 101. So, <laughs> I mean, it, if we're going to talk about pricing, though, 
the conversation and to your point about structural changes really has to be what is the value that we're trying to optimize for. So right now with Europe, I mean, in the wake of the Ukrainian invasion, energy security, uh, you would think would have to be at the forefront of that conversation. Yeah, it, and it should be. Uh, they just shouldn't mess around with the spot price of electricity because the locational marginal price of a megawatt hour of electricity is a truthful piece of information. And it tells you for <clears throat> the the last megawatt hour that you needed at that location to serve demand, taking into consideration transmission constraints and congestion, what is what is the megawatt hour value for that energy and so if i'm if i'm a, if i'm a, if i'm a coal generator or a gas generator or a wind generator or a solar generator my production at that moment is fungible and tradable and exchangeable and you as the consumer won't know any different and don't need to know any different where it came from at that moment um so there there is another question though of over the long term how do you uh, assure adequacy of supply, a diversification of your portfolio, making sure that all of your eggs are not in the Russian pipeline basket, um, or that you have, you know, uh, sort of in America, perhaps burned the bridge as you were trying to cross it and suddenly don't have enough, you know, gas peaker capacity uh, in certain oblong uh, Western states that may face that issue. Um, but those those are actually not concerns about the real-time price formation. What the real-time price does is it's sometimes screaming at you that energy is extremely expensive because the fuel cost input is very expensive, or it's telling you that uh, there's significant scarcity, that uh, supply is having a difficult time covering demand that's present on the system. And so... Um, you know, don't hate the messenger is sort of the classic message about this. And I feel as though, you know, Europe has found itself uh, working in a world where it doesn't even model uh, locationality to its spot prices, thus resulting in an electricity market that I uh, won't get into the complex details, but doesn't even accurately print prices based on the locational value of real time. And so it's kind of working with a map that shows the world to be flat, and then it's complaining about its compass. The problem isn't the compass, it's the map. And meanwhile, in the United States, we've actually designed these markets in a way that that has locationality to the marginal price, which is a really important thing to go from these wider zonal markets to more nodal uh, markets. Um, and the concern, I think, is that spot pricing is just too volatile. Sometimes it's zero or negative, and sometimes sky high, to be able to really intelligently compensate power resources. But the reality is power resources are not earning their revenues uh, by being completely exposed to spot market pricing. In fact, the volatility of spot market pricing is something that screams at consumers and those resources to get themselves hedged to sell to each other under longer term contracts with more stable prices. And if you told yourself what would amount to a sweet little lie by blowing up the locational marginal price and somehow making it more smooth, uh, what you would probably do in the first order of business is actually create a perverse incentive to, for people to hedge less because suddenly the spot price would appear falsely to be less volatile than it, than it actually is. You'd be 
having the same casino, but the casino would be uh, telling you that it wasn't as risky to be placing bets um, in the spot market. So that was a pile of analogies uh, in an attempt to explain a complicated topic, but I'm seeing this appear a lot in both European and American thinking. I I strongly disagree with it, as is probably obvious, um, and it is really important uh, that the integrity of these spot prices be maintained, but that is not to say that there shouldn't be a regulatory intervention to boost resource adequacy, the security of fuel supplies, and everything else. We, we should simply take what we're seeing from the spot price market as a kind of canary in the coal mine, and again, we we shouldn't we should we should allow the canary to enter the mine rather than shooting it before it can. <laughs> the the only analogy I think you needed to add in there was uh, a copper sheet analogy. We we needed we need we need some copper sheet. You know, got to reference that every once in a while. We're we're uh, so I interviewed Frank Wolak on on Public Power Underground before. Big fan of his concept. I haven't gotten to Farhad's analysis yet or, or his concept. Love to hear your take on the different mechanisms that you can use to to restructure some of that uh, forward uh, term market structuring for hedging. Oh, do you have takes on like of the different concepts that are like thought of, which ones you think are rational and, and would be good approaches? Because Yeah, the, the most traditional uh, approach to resource adequacy is is neither of those. And I didn't mention That's it in right. my Twitter thread simply because it's so in effect everywhere. And it is essentially some kind of capacity market where a, um, you know, a very knowledgeable administrator uh, takes a look at power plants and says, this is likely what a power plant can maximally produce at a time of system stress. And then it gives them credit for that. And if you create a market for it, it allows them to sell that credit to load serving entities um, in exchange for its reliability value. And what the power plant is doing is saying, yes, I've I've heard the bureaucrat say that I'm good for 90% of my name plate capacity, and I'm going to sell you these 90 credits uh, to the load serving entity, which can now be assured that it's doing its part for overall system reliability. And those 90 credits obligate me to offer energy during these times of system stress, uh, not necessarily to produce the energy, but at least make my energy production available. And if I don't do that, I face a financial penalty or more. Um, so that's so, the key, that's the capacity markets in the East. That is RAP uh, that's being set up, though it's market-ish rather than a market. It's not um, a market. Not, not a, a market. market. We don't want to call. Market. We don't yeah. want to call it a market. Clear. My God, not a market. I love how I love how like a compliance mechanism is somehow more politically desirable than a, a like an actual market. But whatever. <laughs> um, in any case, they all share these kind of similar DNA. Uh, and what do you is, think? So, so yeah, so uh, we'll pivot here, but Wolak has this take on that type of a market construct that it's like a tenured professor that uh, you're basically paying him to show up, but it's no real, it's like, it's, it's as, it's as good of an incentive as giving a uh, professor tenure to make sure they're good at teaching. Like, uh, what do you think that, of that? Like, well, that, that's, that is a valid criticism. And that is the main uh, defect of these capacity markets. Uh, the best defense of which is that they're, uh, you know, the worst thing except for all the others. Um, right. Now, Wolak has an alternative idea, uh, and that that is basically to take for any given system with a, an amount of demand to put that demand out to bid and suppliers rather than uh, rather than having the bureaucrat come up with the right number, uh, suppliers are offering 
uh, sort of a slice of system, basically saying, I can supply 5% of the total load, whatever it will happen to be in this future hour, uh, with my resources or with resources that I buy. And it's actually trading in megawatt hours of produced energy and not just in the offer of energy uh, right. or capacity. Um, so that's interesting. It has nowhere been implemented, uh, but it, it seems theoretically valid. Um, I, I know, you know, he's heard feedback uh, from people saying, oh, it's it would be very complex and you're just taking this um, attempt to... Uh, uh, to, to solve what is, after all, a big problem of extreme tail events that should be rationalized on a kind of central basis, like an integrated resource plan basis, and you're trying to decentralize and push that down to a bunch of bidders who might not know anything about what they're actually doing, what makes you think they're smarter. Um, but on the other hand, as someone who believes that incentives matter, um, it is nice that someone with a financial incentive uh, would be responsible, perhaps, for doing this. Um, and then Farhad's idea uh, is even possibly more exotic than Frank's, uh, uh, or I don't want to say theoretically exotic because it's a, it's an interesting idea, but it would basically um, create a kind of reinsurance market uh, where um, your, your deliveries to demand, uh, if customers were not actually receiving service uh, because of resource adequacy reasons, um, penalty payments would kick in and that would lead uh, sort of the insurance market, the reinsurance market to make investments in resource adequacy that can maintain reliability because they face the possibility that they'll have to pay out damages in exchange for the premiums they've been collecting. So uh, in essence, a classic insurance market. Um, unfortunately, even there, you don't escape the question of regulatory judgment because, as everyone knows, who's had uh, who buy who's bought insurance, you're obligated to buy insurance, and usually you end up buying the insurance product that the regulator tells you to buy: uh, auto insurance, health insurance, whatever. So, and if there was no uh, individual mandate to buy auto insurance or an individual mandate to buy health insurance, would would everyone actually buy it? No. And the people who didn't buy it are oftentimes uh, vulnerable customers or people who don't understand much about what insurance is or the product they're buying. And therefore, it's been the judgment of society in general that uh, you should have some kind of law or regulation that makes them buy it. And that means we're right back to a capacity market or something like it. Which is a great segue to the next one where we talk more about some regulators uh and and the importance of regulators implementing policy you ready abigail yeah regulators talking about markets uh the california independent system operator hosted a stakeholder symposium november 9th and 10th where western energy markets evolution was a frequent area of discussion the agenda was packed with notable dignitaries including opening remarks by jennifer granholm secretary of the department of energy our own Jason Fordney, editor of California Energy Markets, was in attendance to cover the event for our, our publication. He noted a recurring theme of, quote, more of everything in his coverage of the Western Utility Executives panel, and a link to his reporting will be in the show notes. The closing panel for the first day of the event included elected representatives from both Nevada and Colorado. Infamously, Nevada and Colorado passed that legislation I mentioned earlier, requiring RTO participation by 2030. The Nevada legislation applies to transmission providers governed by the Public Utility Commission of Nevada, which is appointed, and the Colorado legislation applies to all transmission utilities. Both require participation by 2030. 
The Colorado legislation calls for the creation of a Colorado Electric Transmission Authority. So, Travis, what's your take on that as a former regulator? Yeah, uh, so the, this is interesting. Um, and, you know, you have not had a long history of lawmaking in the American West outside of California uh, around uh, mandates to participate in RTOs. Um but I, I think candidly, we've reached the point uh, in the West where most people realize um, that some kind of evolved wholesale market uh, that has a single dispatch and an overlying resource adequacy regime perhaps is somehow necessary. So whether you do it through a legislative mandate with regulation filling in the details, or whether you do it through uh, an organic and industry-led process with regulation having some oversight. I think both of those can land you uh, in the right end state. Um, though as general rule, I have some skepticism of uh, state state laws getting into uh, great detail um, uh, about these topics, ma mainly because they often feature uh, items of rule of, of log rolling um, that are are not necessarily great for the public at large. But I, I have not looked into uh, the specifics of the Nevada and Colorado statutes. I only know the kind of headline uh, that you read off about participation by 2030. I, I will say in general that um, you know it seems that the West is sort of approaching maybe more quickly than before a time for choosing. Uh, when it comes to which wholesale market uh, people would like to belong to. Um, and if you're a regulator or a staff member on a regulator or a person in a load-serving entity role, it's definitely worth thinking about which one fits best for you and which one is more likely to vindicate your interest. Um, you know, full disclosure, I was a board member on the governing body of the energy imbalance market. <clears throat> I played a role in helping uh, Kaiso set that up. I'm still a great believer in that. And e even though I, I have my doubts <laughs> about California public policy in all sorts of ways, the value of markets is often about trading the same thing that two parties, perhaps because of their divergent policy views, have a different view of the value of, uh, or trading something uh, and, and that could be because of public policy. It could be because they're at different longitudes or latitudes in terms of demand and when their resources are producing. And so it gives me some bit of skepticism that a market would be created that does not include 50% of the load in the American West. If you do that, you're going to have to end up creating uh, some kind of comprehensive joint operating agreement between the two markets, mm -hmm. uh, because as we all know, there's a huge interrelationship between California and the rest of the West. And ironically, uh, JOAs end up being disputes between RTOs, uh, which and those disputes very much are subject to FERC calling the balls and strikes. So <laughs> in, in a strange way, if the West doesn't hang together, uh, it it could eventually lead to a situation where FERC has to engage in more adjudication between states, uh, which I, is I don't think what people are aiming for in the West. Last time I checked, so I have to Not claim ignorance here with the JOAs. I mostly know of those being a new, longtime newspaper man. Uh, you know, joint operating agreements to keep to, as uh, two ailing papers alive in a city for a little while longer. Uh, so how does that work with utilities I, or uh, markets? 
ISOs, RTOs. I'm yeah. not I, I'm not uh, familiar with this. Is that's good because like operating I, the grid or what? I've so never I've never heard of the JOA being in use for the newspaper industry. So that's a fascinating use case. Uh, no, these JOAs are just uh, they 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 dictate the terms of trade and dispatch between RTOs uh, when you have two abutting one another. So um, you you end up you know having to solve uh, problems like. Um, you know, the trading day and the timing of trades and settlements and who's leaning on who uh, for if you have a resource adequacy market and who's responsible for buying transmission and how does it settle. Basically, anything that would be necessary to describe uh, the, um, uh, the, the the necessary preconditions to trade between two RTOs uh, have to be spelled out in the joint operating agreement or somewhere adjacent to that JOA. So it's it really becomes, uh, I mean, much like a tariff that FERC would approve um, that describes the RTO's internal operations, it becomes um, uh, a very important document. And unlike, again, what makes it important is that uh, unlike a, a tariff that uh, a utility might file or that a regional state committee might direct an RTO's board to file, if that's the governance structure, I think a JOA is just because it involves two possibly conflicting entities uh the it, disagreements uh would by order of course kind of have to be resolved by the federal regulator yeah well it's an interesting point that you raised though about uh the 50 percent of load in the west in terms of how that uh you know how that plays out as folks lean towards one option or the other as wholesale market uh proposals come out we're seeing that right now. That's kind of what everyone in the West is waiting to see what happens with the California's day ahead market proposal and SPP's markets plus. I wanted to dig a little bit before we move on. And, you know, the difference between the Western Resource Adequacy Program was a kind of a, Not an a initiative. And it, what's that? Not a market. Correct, not a market. Uh, was an initiative that was kind of uh, engaged uh, the electric utilities to come up with the market design, or not a market, uh, the program design. Um, and, and instead of like in Colorado and Nevada, uh, there's this legislative that would kind of require it. Is there any like just high level takes you have on as a former regulator, the different stressors between those two perspectives? And uh, is one uh, easier policy? to engage with than the other? So you're asking, uh, is is it easier when it's coming from the industry or from the legislature? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just Maybe just cut everything I said, and then we'll just have you summarizing me, and then that'll be a way better question. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I think from the perspective of a regulator, you know, uh, there's some regulators who will look at their statutory authority and be comfortable with receiving uh, industry proposals, even those that are highly transformative, uh, like the formation of an RTO would be. And there's other regulators that are more uh, cautious and are looking for a signal uh, or a law um, from the state legislature to actually do something. And so <clears throat> I think a lot of it just has to depend on um, the political institutions of the states in question and the regulators in question. I mean, I have to say, uh, from at least from my perspective in Montana, uh, I thought the, the statutes gave you know pretty much all the authority one might need uh, to effectuate an RTO if that was the direction um, that you're going. But of course, you know the the legislature is the, the sovereign of a state, um, and there's good reason to believe, especially in Colorado, where 
it's kind of been like Lucy and Charlie with the football, uh, where Excel has taken a number of runs at this, um, hasn't gotten it done, and uh, the legislature just decided to give them a deadline. Um, and that that is what now we're working with. Yeah, of course, in Colorado, Excel is not the only game in town as it is in Nevada, as NV Energy more or less is in Nevada. So, you know, which is a key factor in the different shape of the legislation there that, you know, uh, Colorado has a lot of co-ops. So, yep, very true. Yep. Okay. Well, that's, that's, I think that's it for that story. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll close out with a segment where we TL, TLDR our way through the news and short to ground. Public Power Underground is brought to you by NWPPA. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in the power of training and education. Every year, more than 6,500 public power employees learn and network at our classes, webinars, workshops, and conferences. NWPPA offers more than 200 event, 250 events, wowzer, to choose from in areas such as leadership, engineering, operations, accounting, and finance, communications, and many more. Sometimes this very podcast, Public Power Underground, is broadcast live from one of our events. We call that being more powerful together. What will you learn this year? Find an event that's right for you at nwppa.org forward slash catalog. That's nwppa.org forward slash catalog. This is Short to Ground, a segment where we blow a fuse covering the news. I'm Paul Dockery. And I'm Travis Cavula. And we're shorting you gotta do it with me it makes it more fun we're shorting, shorting to, to ground, ground. There you go. <laughs> okay i'm up with the first item uh the california public utilities commission released a new proposal for the state's solar net metering program the new proposal often referred to as nem 3.0 nem 3.0 would replace retail rates with avoided cost calculator valuation and net billing that leaves legacy nem customers on their current plans the california puc said the rate structure under the proposal would be significantly different between peak and off-peak hours and the program would encourage shifting load and storing energy during evening and overnight hours and exporting during peak periods to provide greater grid reliability for more coverage check out Anne Ernst's coverage in California energy markets. And I, I certainly know uh, as a Sunrun shareholder how good this was for the rooftop solar companies. So don't uh, let them tell you anything different, even though I'm sure they'll be complaining about it nevertheless. <laughs> the Western Electricity Coordinating Council's 2022 resource adequacy assessment released on November 2nd, 2022, noted a rapidly changing resource mix that relies more on variable energy resources, which will create increasing resource adequacy risk in the West over the next 10 years. Compared to last year's assessment, the demand at risk indicator, or DRI, decreased through 2025, quote, suggesting that the risk for load loss decreased, unquote, the report states. However, the planning reserve market margin indicator, or PRMI, has increased, quote, indicating that there is a greater variability in the system, which needs to be accounted for to maintain reliability, unquote. Dan Ketchpole covered the released report in the November 11th edition of Clearing Up. British Columbia-based PowerX has committed to joining the Southwest Power Pool's proposed Markets Plus initiative if it goes live in the West, the first to make such a commitment. SPP said November 7th it is considering launching Markets Plus in stages, starting with the governance structure in 2023, then the imbalance market the next year, followed as soon as possible by the day ahead market. Dan Catchpole covered the news for clearing up. 
they announced this the first day of the California ISO Symposium. That that's got to be the most passive aggressive thing you can do uh, in course. the industry with RTS. Of course, of course. Uh, two Northwest Public Private Partnerships are among more than twenty proposals for seven billion dollars in federal funding to establish regional clean energy hubs. One is led by developer Obsidian Renewables, and the other by Washington and Oregon state governments. Washington and Oregon submitted their proposal dubbed PNWH two hub for the Pacific Northwest Hydrogen Association, a partnership of tribal, labor, government, environmental, and private sector hydrogen company leaders. Another Dan Ketchpole story in clearing up, and we can talk about it once we get through this segment, Dan, because you wanted to talk about it earlier. According to coverage by Daniel Moore and Bloomberg Law, Senator Joe Manchin won't hold a renomination hearing for FERC's Rich Glick. Glick, a Democrat who was nominated in 2017 by Donald Trump, was renominated by the Biden White House in May. He currently serves as the chairman of the commission, and without being reconfirmed, he would have to leave the commission at the end of the year. Senator Manchin serves as the chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Other brief mentions from the Energy News Roundup, Mike Hummel, CEO and General Manager of Salt River Project, announced he will retire in May 2023. Hummel has been at the helm for five of his 41 years at SRP. ESS Inc., an Oregon-based manufacturer of long-duration iron flow batteries for commercial and utility-scale energy storage applications and Burbank Water and Power, signed an agreement through which the company will construct a 75KW 500-kilowatt-hour ESS energy warehouse for the municipal utility, which will connect with an existing 265KW solar array on BWP's eco-campus. The installation is expected to be complete by December 2023. Pacificor is seeking an approximately $27.9 million base revenue requirement increase, which translates to a nearly 26% net rate increase to its base electric rates in California, according to the utility's CPUC application in May. Approximately 76% of the increase is, stated, is related to wildfire mitigation and vegetation management, O'Rourke said during a November 7th public hearing. O'Rourke, I forgot to copy, is an official for Pacificor. I'm intuiting from what I wrote, but you should go check out Greg Mason's coverage and clearing up to make sure I got that right. And from Energy Twitter notifications, the Public Utility Commission of Texas released a new independent analysis of six different proposals to increase the reliability of the grid. The assessment was performed by E3 under the direction of the PUC Commission and staff. The PUCT is adding five days to the normal 30-day public comment period to accommodate the Thanksgiving holiday, and comments are due by noon Thursday, December 15th. Our own Travis Kavula was quoted in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend in an article by Jennifer Hiller titled, quote, the U.S. electric system is leaning on customers to avoid blackouts, unquote. Travis uh, is making the case for, quote, presets for more major appliances to be responsive to the electric grid's reliability needs. Love to hear more about that, end quote. Absolutely. Uh, spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today, November 14, is at $125 per megawatt hour, with natural gas at $7.96 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of $69 and a heat rate of 15700 Spot power in the Southwest is at $90 per megawatt hour, Southern California at $95.32, and Northern California at $96.12. The price of December 2022 natural gas futures at Henry Hub decreased 40.3 cents from $6.00 
26.8 cents per MMBTU November 2nd to $5.86 on November 9th. The price of the 12-month strip averaging December 2022 through November 2023 features contracts declined 20 and a half cents to $5.15 per MMBTU. Absolutely great job reading that. I don't know that I could have done that as well as you did. Well done. <laughs> Working natural gas in storage in the lower 48 states as of October 31st, 2021, totaled 3,531 billion cubic feet, according to month-end estimates based on EIA's weekly natural gas storage report released November 10th. This total is the second lowest end of refill season inventory level since 2008, uh, highlighting uh, comments Travis made earlier about kind of the fear of the coming winter. Total inventory as of October 31st was 115 BCF, 3% less than the five-year end of October average for 2017 to 2021, and 104 BCF, which is 3% less than last year at this time. This week in NOAA climate forecast, the 6 to 10 day outlook has below normal temperatures across the country with average precipitation for Washington and Oregon and above average precipitation for Northern California. No update to the 30 or 90 day outlook since the last episode. The only weather trends that fall in the likely category for the region are above average precipitation in Eastern Oregon, Idaho, and Western Montana in the 30 day outlook and above average temperatures in Arizona and New Mexico in the 90-day outlook. Lastly, checking Northwest water supply forecasts, October through September flows of the Dallas for water year 2023 are currently forecast to be 85% of normal, and April through September is at 88%. Danding elevation at Grand Coulee for November 13th was 1,285 that's it for our TLDR segment. Thanks to Public Power Underground's production partners at News Data for letting us use their leads. If you want to know more, you can find the complete stories in California energy markets and clearing up. Ready to close out this segment, Travis? That's short, short to, to ground. ground. We did it. Uh, I'll start with you, Abigail. Any stories in there you wanted to quickly get through? I, I That took way longer than what I was hoping it would. I think it was. It, it's about... Uh, getting ready for winter. I think that's, that's really what it comes down to. And um, Travis is being quoted in the Wall Street Journal about leaning on customers to ensure that we keep the lights on and perhaps more importantly, the heat on. Um, I'm doing my part, guys. I've got Thank typing you. gloves that's, on. That's awesome. Typing vest. gloves. Fast. You know, um, yeah, I, I got to have it. <laughs> so yeah, like uh, bundle. Travis, up. we're going to we're going to compensate these people at some point, right? We for, are. Yeah. Or, and that, yeah, and that's, what this whole, for that. that's what this whole story is about is like, let's stop begging people to conserve and let's empower them to conserve and pay them for doing so uh, for being the de facto power plant uh, that their appliances can be. So, but doing that, as I say in the article is sort of contingent on making sure that their appliances are smart, that the grid is smart, that they have retail rates that actually reflect the time varying costs on the wire grid. If you don't, if you don't send any kind of signal to demand at all that its contributions are valuable, then it's not going to happen. And that means you'll just get more Twitter of Gavin Newsom asking people to conserve for no money, which is not good. Well, on, the other the, thing I'd like, uh, not best. Oh no, go ahead. The other thing that I uh, keep piece to it that I, from my perspective would be like having apps so that you can set some parameters. So you're not having to think about it. Like, Oh, does this make sense for me to, uh, you know, not run my washing machine or dryer right now versus just having, having it automated so that you're like, when it hits this, this, and this parameter, yep. Take this appliance offline. 
Because I don't have time to think about there's DR there, yeah. time of use rates. Like nope. there's every reason in the world for me to have the Kaiso app and the ERCOT app open on my phone a lot, but ordinary consumers <laughs> don't. The, if they're doing that, it indicates a problem. The one other story that I'd comment on, just a, a shout out to my friend, uh, Chairman Rich Glick, uh, who I know has been on your program. I I I hope he gets renominated. I think he's a real uh, thoughtful individual, certainly one of the more studied people uh, to have served in the role of commission chair for a long while. And I, I, I don't claim to know what's happening around the behind the scenes politics, but uh, he's, he's a solid individual. And uh, even when I disagree with him, his contributions on the commission have been, um, you know, very clear and uh, well explained. Hard agree. Thank you for that. Uh, and I will just follow up and say, we're going to follow you wherever you go so that we can learn more about the PUC, uh, PUC of Texas's independent study of the scenarios. Love to hear your takes on that wherever you go. But we're running out of time. So that's all we're going to cover this week. Travis, do you feel valued and appreciated? I sure do, Paul. Thank you for having me. Did you enjoy this? Like, sincerely. You can, you can, you can be honest. Nobody's going to listen. It's gonna, nobody's going to get this far. You can lie. It's fine. I, I, I love it. And I don't think. I'm, I, I got in any trouble with my communications people. So that's the best take. That's the best take. <laughs> Abigail, do you feel valued and appreciated? I do. Thanks, Paul. How about you, Dan? This is fun. Always. And uh, it's administrative law judge Shannon O'Rourke. Sure, she's an administrative law judge, not a Pacific Corps. Oh, thank you. Thank you for doing that for Sorry, me. I just Live. couldn't help but go yep. fact-checked it. So That's perfect. I, I really appreciate I feel appreciated. you for that. I actually really appreciate All you for that. You thank you for doing that. Appreciated? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. I also feel like I'm out of time, so I'm going to jump off, and I'm going to record the rest of this some other time by myself. Because uh, the rest of it's just readout. So thank you all for joining this, and let's do it again sometime. Public Power Underground is the power industry's premier infotainment program that covers electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. You found the episode, but you may have colleagues, friends, or peers who haven't. We'd appreciate it if you sent it along, just in case. See if they like it. It's a fun little suit. Try it on. Maybe we'll like it and we'll wear it right out of the store. It'll be wonderful. You can also sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. As always, send any news, questions, opinions, corrections, or complaints to me at on Twitter at a power manager. You can find Dan Catchpole at Clearing Up, where he is a reporter and associate editor. And you can find Abigail Sawyer at California Energy Markets, where she is the associate editor and reporter for the Southwest. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed are our own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written by Paul Dockery, Dan Ketchpole, and Abigail Sawyer, and it's edited and published by the Stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Gillery and Ian Bledsoe. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in.